I'm a little out of sorts because we've been in a series for several months now, and so um, I'm acclimating myself to it. I was telling Roger Rhodes earlier that I'm, I'm a little nervous and excited at the same time, so uh, you're all joining me on this journey here. So what is the church? That's the new series that we're going to be in for seven weeks, and as we're cruising through the gospel of, of Matthew, we get to chapter 16, verse 18, and we see this. And I, say all, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build up my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So as we're going through the New Testament, this is the first place that we see this word used. Skip two chapters in Matthew 18. We see it again in that familiar, uh, how do we work out problems with one another? We see the word church again, and then we have to skip forward to Acts and then the rest of the New Testament uh, to see it even more. All told, it's used 114 times in 111 verses in the New Testament. And so that's quite a bit. But I wonder as we sit here nearly 2,000 years removed from when these would have been writing from when the new church started. How good of a grasp do we have on what the church is, what the church was, what the church is supposed to be? And so that's really the underlying premise uh, for this series. Um, let's start with a multiple choice question here. So you got 25% chance of getting it right. So what is the church? Is it a building? Like, did you see the new church that was being built downtown? Is it an event? Like, hey, Sarah, I missed you at church last Sunday, although I think you were here. You're just the first person I saw. Is it an organization that has, you know, leaders and budgets and programs and, and, and building structures and stuff like that? Like, how much did you donate to the church last year? Or is it a community? Like the church helped us through a difficult time in our marriage. Think about that. I'll read you a quote while you're, while you're pondering. Um, Richard Halverson, who's a former chaplain of the United States Senate, uh, said this of the church. In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centered on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. That stings a little bit, doesn't it? Now, while that's certainly an oversimplified view of 2,000 years of uh, New Testament history, if you're at all familiar with church history, uh, you would know that that's not really too far off the mark. It's pretty accurate in just a, you know, a few-sentence summary. And so, which answer is right? Building an event, an organization, a community? All of the above. Anybody just think it's one thing versus another? 
No, no brave souls to raise their hand there. Well, okay, good. Rick, Joe. Good. Don't jump too far ahead in my sermon, though. <laughs> so this was a bit of a trick question. Uh, obviously, depending on the context in which we're talking about the church, any one of these uh, could be applicable. And so what I would say is that's the wrong question to ask. What we should be asking when we approach a series like this is, how did the writers of the New Testament define church? That's how we should look at this. You see, when the New Testament was written, church would have never been thought of as a building or an event. Church historians tell us that the buildings dedicated to the worship of Jesus Christ didn't come until in the fourth century. And so well past the time uh, that, that, like Matthew uh, 16 was written that we looked at a moment ago. And in the early days, the church did meet weekly together for prayer, teaching, and encouragement. Uh, but these events were not called the church, but rather they were understood as gatherings of the church, if that makes sense. And so we're left with two answers left, an organization and a community. You see, in our culture, I think we can easily get these two things confused and or we squeeze them together. For instance, it's very possible for someone to dedicate their time, talent, and treasure to the institution that we call church, but never really know the mutual love, uh, joy, and support that comes when we're united together as the body of Christ. Likewise, Organizational structure is very important, and we see that begin to take place very early on in the New Testament. However, and this is kind of the rub, we confuse the church with the with the structures. We we confuse sorry we confuse the church with the structures designed to support it. Okay, the Bible tells us that people are the vessels of God's presence, not programs or buildings or certain ministries. So again, all of our stuff exists to support God's people, not God's people existing to support or have all of the stuff. And so it's kind of a little bit of an underlier for this series um, in general and kind of where we're going. I want to talk a little bit about why this series, why now, and who's this for, and, and what are we wanting to accomplish I'll get to this here in a moment. So why this series? Why now? We are nearly three years removed from COVID. For some of us, that probably feels like 10 years, and for some of us, that feels like just months ago. And whether or not you know it, COVID wreaked havoc on churches. There are many churches in our area and around the United States that would have seating like this uh, to capacity, and they came back after COVID down 35 or 40% in attendance. Show of hands, anybody that wants to wake up tomorrow with 65% of your bank account. 65% of your workforce. Now, the church isn't a business in the same way, but nobody 
wanted to think about coming to church the following week or when COVID let up and said, hey, I hope we have 65% of the people that we had before COVID. And so that's one reason. The church has changed and we've had to adapt in a lot of different ways, not just LSCC, but, but all churches. Another thing for us, and this is more speaking to, to, to some that are around that have been a part of the church for, for longer than before COVID, um, there's been a lot of change here. Last five or six years, but we could even go back into the early 2000s and there's been a lot of change at LSCC. A lot of leadership change, a lot of change in these seats. And so where are we as a church? What are we now? Are we the same thing that got founded in 1977? Are we the same that was being preached in the 90s or the early 2000s? What's different today than just five or six years ago? And so part of what we're trying to accomplish in this series is to take a look at that as well. And so for those that have joined us since COVID or even in the, in the last few months, what a series like this should do is likely affirm to you the, the things that you've been seeing and participating in. The way that we teach, the way that we worship, the way that we do other types of ministries. And for those that have been here longer, it's going to do the same thing, but that might cut both ways for you. For those that have been here for years and years and years, there are things that we do in the church today that weren't the same six years ago, 10 years ago, or 20 years ago. And that's okay. We've adapted, we've changed. But what this is designed to do as we work through these next several weeks is for us to have a clear understanding and a collective understanding of what the church is and what we're accomplishing here together as a community, as a body of believers. And so there's any number of ways that we could have gone about this series. Uh, this is just how I decided to break it up. First, we're going to look at God's plan for the world. We can't jump forward to Matthew 16, 18 and start from there because Matthew, 8, Matthew 16, 18 would have no context without knowing why. And so it's important for us to start with God's plan from the world for the world, and that's what we'll do today. Next week, we'll look more specifically at what is the church. So those 114 instances in the New Testament, we'll look at how those break apart and what that means for us. And the third week, we'll look at the leadership of the church. We find that all throughout the New Testament, but we see it in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, to name a few places and so we'll talk about the leadership of the church. Fourth, although I would say that this is foundational in the sense that we wouldn't have these first three bullet points if we didn't treat this one first. It's just this is where this one fell better in the series. God's word as the DNA of the church. I talked a moment ago about change over the years here. Now, certainly we are standing on the shoulders of uh, men and women and leaders that have come before us. And there's no doubt about that. One thing that has changed in recent years, though, and we talk about this a lot, is the way that we teach. Excluding 
this series that we'll be in for seven weeks, our primary teaching method is to pick up a book of the Bible and work through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so that is the DNA of our church. That's something that's a little bit different than it used to be. And that's what's propelling us forward. So that's what we'll focus on in week four. Week five, uh, relationships as the lifeblood of the church. Answer D, a community. Brothers and sisters in Christ. We exist to be together in relationship. That's the whole point of all of this. The rest of the stuff is a support structure uh, like we talked about earlier. So there's this uh, phrase that's used a lot in the New Testament called the one and others. And it talks about brothers and sisters in Christ and the different things that we're supposed to be and do and get with one another. And so we'll look at those. And in week six, it'll probably take two weeks, week six and seven, we'll look at some more distinctives that are more specific to Lake Superior Christian Church. Um, you've heard me say big C, or you'll hear me say big C, and by that I mean the church overall. And when I say uh, little C, that would be Lake Superior Christian Church or whatever church you might be coming from if you visit. And so that's a, just a very quick overview of where we're going uh, in this series. And so I'm glad that you all are here, and I'm glad that you're here for the first week of this, and I think there's going to be a lot of fruit that comes from a study like this. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning grateful, as always, to be gathered together in your name. Guys, we know it's, it's not a building or an event or a program. We're the body of Christ, the Bible says. And so we come together to worship, and we worship in song and praise, and we worship through studying your word. We worship through serving one another, Lord, and we worship through giving of our time, talent, and treasure. That's, that's what you command of us. That's what you expect of us as Christians. And so we thank you for the opportunity to do that today, and, and as we leave here and do that with our families or in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, Lord. So I, I pray that we'll take what we learn uh, today and through this series and use it effectively in that way. Yet I think of uh, Shirley, uh, who was not feeling well this morning when she got here. God, I pray for a rest. Uh, hopefully that's all it is. And if it's more, God, we pray that uh, what, whatever's going on will be diagnosed quickly and Shirley will be back to full health. And I pray for our church community and our local community where the flu's running through, and that can just wreak havoc, especially on young families, where you're just passing it off from one person to the next. God, I pray for a rest for parents, and thank you for grandparents and uh, church members and other people that are able to step up and help if that's a ride or whatever. God, thank you for that. We pray for uh, recuperation and just recovery for all those that have been sick so that they can get back to full health and, and leading uh, godly lives like you would have them lead. God, for the remainder of today, we pray that uh, we would glorify and honor you in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to start with 
God's plan uh, for the world, God's plan for the world. And we really need to do this to have a good understanding about this point before we can have a God, a solid grasp on God's plan through the church, God's plan of redemption or what we uh, what we're going to call today kind of the we'll take a, a, a meta view of Scripture, uh, the overarching story theme or purpose and how we get uh, to that passage that we read uh, in Matthew 16. And so we see creation first. And if, if you guys opened your Bibles uh, to page number one, this is where uh, this begins. And I'm not going to read a lot here other than to establish what this is and what it's about. Genesis 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what we need to know from the outset is that God was there and God existed and then God created. That's what kicks this all off. We see as we read through the rest of chapter 1 that he created the earth, that he created the waters, that he created plants and, and, and animals, and then he created us, the Bible says. It says that he, that he gave us life through his breath, and that's creation. So again, it, it, this happened before there was any plan, or, or there was before there was any world, any earth, anything like that. Ephesians tells us that that God planned this, God planned us as brothers and sisters in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so this has been the plan from the beginning. If we skip over a couple chapters, we're going to see where things turn. Chapter 3. And so Adam and Eve are in this garden, this garden of, of perfection, this garden that uh, had eternal life, that this garden that they had everything that they needed, including choice. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And we learned that before that, that God made this entire garden, that they could do whatever they wanted in the garden except for eat from this tree. But one thing that I would say about this that would connect to the Scripture, God's Word being our DNA, is in some churches when we look at Genesis chapters 1 through 11, this can be dismissed as myth or fable or as not true. Here we believe that all scripture is God-breathed. And so that means this story, that means some other crazy things that happen in Genesis 1 through 11 and everything that falls behind it. I've said this before, but if we start to pick and choose, where do we stop? And so just because something doesn't make sense to us or just because we can't have uh, this empirical proof that we might be searching for in today's a culture and society doesn't mean that we can just dismiss areas of Scripture that either don't sound good, don't feel good, or we don't understand. And so the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees, 
of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it, you shall not touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. And so there's the, there's the little carrot. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took its fruit and ate and she gave it also to her husband with her and he ate. And so they have directly disobeyed God's order, God's command. He said, you can have all of this, just not this. And they got led to believe, they got deceived that if they had this, that this would make them, what did it say? More like God. And so if you're reading around or if you've been in a Bible study, this whole scene right here is what we would call original sin. Again, this is something that some churches adhere to and others don't. We, we teach and believe in original sin here. And so they eat and the eyes of them were both opened. They knew they were naked. Now there's shame and, and guilt So they sewed fig leaves together and made them a loincloth. And then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. And so now there's guilt and shame for the pride of stepping in and saying, I want to be like God. And they're hiding from God. Before this, they could walk with God and do anything they wanted. They didn't know guilt. They didn't know shame. And Yahweh called to them, where are you? And he said, and Adam said, I heard a sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid, I was ashamed. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave me, uh, she gave it to me and I ate. And so there's a whole another sermon series about this where we might talk about Men being leaders and not passive. This is the first instance we see of awful leadership from men. And I'm not going to beat you with that today, but it's right there in plain text. Men being passive instead of leading. We have this right here. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so Yahweh God said to the serpent, and here's where this begins to connect to where we're going later today and in this series. Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so right here is the start of redemptive history. Adam and Eve were given the garden, perfection, eternal life. They chose pride instead and they got guilt and shame and everything that follows after it in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament. And not just that. This is flashing forward 
to what we see when Jesus comes in the New Testament. I wanted to spend a minute here in the Old Testament period because it's really important for us to understand what's happening in the Old Testament, specifically the sacrificial system, if we're going to have a good enough grasp on the sacrifice that we get in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And so what we see in the Old Testament period after chapter 11, we see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we see these uh, families, we see covenants that God makes with these folks. And we say that we're going to bless the land, you're going to get land, you're going to have relatives and, and, and children beyond measure, the sands of the sea, the stars of the sky. And this carries through the Old Testament. And we get to Exodus and Leviticus where we're introduced to Moses and the story shifts a little bit. And Leviticus offers up these detailed instructions about a sacrificial system. And so this is a a little bit of a a weird thing for us as we sit here today um, as Christians, but we need to understand what's happening with it to fully understand what Christ did for us on the cross. So the Bible says that God is holy and he expects holiness of his people. And in the Old Testament, that was continually put in front of them. And so the sacrificial system was being delivered from this sinfulness, being delivered from the, shil- the, the, the guilt and the shame and the pride and all of that. And today when we think about, hey, I just made a real sacrifice with that sort of a thing, rarely, if ever, do we mean that there was blood shed for it. When we think about that when we celebrate and remember Memorial Day or other things that have happened in our history where people lost their lives or, or soldiers served and died. But rarely today when we make sacrifices are we talking about blood that was shed. It's mostly when we sacrifice giving some sort of an inconvenience to us, and, and that could vary in degree. The reality for us in the Old Testament, uh, old and new, though, is that sacrifice was a very bloody affair. We see an animal that's being butchered on an altar. Any of you guys have a a farm background? You've been around animals on a farm, so you've got a little more familiarity with what this looks like. The vast majority of us would have no idea what to do if we needed to butcher an animal, let alone multiple animals, or in the Old Testament context, droves of people bringing animals for sacrifice. It would have been just an incredible scene filling the senses, eyes, nose, ears, you're hearing bones crack, you're smelling fire, you're seeing blood which wigs some people out. This would have been incredibly intense. And the problem with the Old Testament, the problem with this sacrificial system is that was only good for that day. Or that was only good for that week or month or year. 
the very next day or the next month, they had to come back and do the same thing again. The whole drove of people. And so this is quite an experience. We see in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, uh, these detailed instructions of offering sacrifices. There's five regular offerings that we read about there. Uh, The burnt offering was the most important sacrifice at most Israelite festivals and was offered once every morning and once every evening. Uh, Bringing the burnt offering was a very personal experience intended uh, most certainly to make an impression on the Israelite offering his sacrifice. So he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. That animal is in his place, his or her place. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons and the priests shall bring the blood and and throw the blood against the sides of the altar. That is the entrance of the tent of meeting. To make atonement for sin and to gain God's acceptance, the offerer identified himself uh, with the animal by laying his hand on the head. When the animal died, it died for the sins of the person that was putting their hand on the animal. This is what this was about. Neither the offerer or the priest ate any of the meat. It was all burnt up in the fire. And this was sacrificed in its purest form. It was was a valuable animal given up wholly to God. So I want you to think about something that is so near and dear to you that you wouldn't want to give it up. Like there's a fire that's engulfing your house and that's the thing that you want to run back in and grab. This was very, very valuable to people. This was no easy thing. This was no small thing, giving up these animals for this sacrifice. We see fellowship and peace offerings. This was sort of a meal that they took together. You could bring family and friends uh, as part of this sacrifice, and, and it was an act of an offering reminding the worshiper that, only, that the only way that he had been able to come back into the fullness and joy of fellowship and communion with God was through the blood of a perfect substitutionary sacrifice. They didn't look out in their herds, find one with a broken leg, and bring that to God. They looked out in their herds, in their flocks, And they picked out the one with the best coat, the one with the best muscle, the one that stuck out the most as being the best, and that's what they gave over to God. We see that in the next two verses. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, a fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting, and all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out on the base of the altar of burnt offering, that is at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And so there's this pouring out of the blood. This is what was considered the perfect substitutionary sacrifice. And so what the blood represented here was it was demonstrating in sort of this dramatic fashion that that blood, it was blood that atoned for Israel's sin. Blood. We need to remember that as we get into the New Testament. 
And this cleansed the tabernacle, it cleansed the priest, it cleansed the people and the land uh, from all kinds of defilement. We see guilt offerings, uh, and and along with burnt offerings, these were offered uh, twice a day. And this was a way to express uh, gratitude or thanksgiving uh, to the Lord. We see fellowship and peace offerings. I think I was a little ahead on my slide there. That's what that one was for. The last thing I want to talk about here is, is the principle of substitution. The sacrificial uh, system provisions that we see in Leviticus taught here that God can be approached with the blood of a worthy substitute. And while all these sacrifices might seem like an unbearable burden to us because we're so unfamiliar with it, if we think like an Israelite, they would have been relieved to know that instead of paying the penalty that they rightly deserved, this animal, this sacrifice, was given for them instead. We get into the new covenant uh, through Christ now. So we've established this sacrificial uh, system and what that means that there needs to be blood shed for atonement, blood shed for the place of the individual. What happens through the rest of Old Testament history, though, is that they never measure up. It's never enough. It has to be every morning, every evening every week, every month, every year. And those of us that were here through Ezra and Nehemiah, we talked a lot about Old Testament history, and we saw that they could just never get out of their own way. And so no matter the system that God put in place for these sacrifices to to, to atone for sins, it was never good enough with this method. And so something new was needed. Hebrews 7, verses 26 and 27. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, this is Jesus, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And so the perfect lamb, we hear it. Similar uh, language that we would see uh, in the Old Testament only, uh, Jesus was spotless and it was once uh, for all who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so when when Jesus came, when the cross atoned for our sins, Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, this daily system, this, this system that had to be repeated constantly was no longer in effect. It says, because he died once for all and when he offered himself up. And there's a really interesting passage if we get over to Hebrews 10 that talks more about this. I'm looking at my time and I don't have time to do that like I would want to. But it says here, I'll just 
grab the, the beginning for the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So the sacrificial system that we see in the Old Testament, Hebrews says, was but a shadow of what was to come because it couldn't be perfect. But we have that when we get to Jesus. The church is the hope of the world, and we see this a number of different places. Circle back to where we started here. Matthew 16, 18, and I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, upon Jesus, upon the testimony of the apostles and, and, and what Jesus had done, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. It means that it will stand the test of time. 1 Corinthians 3, talking about the foundation of the church. For no one can lay a foundation other than, one, other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the Bible talks a lot about Christ being the foundation of our faith, the foundation of the church, the body of believers. Ephesians 2, so then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. The saints means us, believers in Christ, men and women that call Christ Lord, and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So this is what we have here, the New Testament that was brought forward. It's built on that foundation, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the foundation of the church. Some takeaways uh, for today. We live in interesting times. If you're on social media at all, if you watch the news at all, or anything that talks about church or evangelicalism, you might be led to think that things are spiraling and they're on the verge of, of crashing, of, of breaking down. To some degree, there's truth to that. People like Pew Research do these studies about all kinds of things. This one in particular, modeling the future of religion in America. And if you, if you can't read the next line, it says, if recent trends in religious switching continue, Christians could make up less than half of the U.S. population within a few decades. I believe the article goes on to say uh, down to like 46% by 2050 or 2070. Well, that's talking specifically about here in the United States. And depending on where you read and what sources or people that you're around, this may affirm what it is that you think and believe. But there's a flip side to it. Lifeway research here, seven encouraging trends of global Christianity. And this would have been in 2022. If anybody wants either one of these articles, let me know and I can send you the links. What we have a tendency to do here in the States is, is this. You ever seen a horse with those little blinder things on? And the only thing they can see is what's in front of them. 
surely there's a lot wrong with the church in America, and there's a lot right too. But if we expand our view, Christianity is growing globally in places like India and China and Africa, growing at rates that we haven't seen in years. And so we have to kind of get out of our own way when we think about Christianity, not just here, but Christianity on the whole. Acts 1.8 is happening. You might not see or feel or believe that in your current circumstances, but it is happening. The church is growing globally. More people are coming to Christ every single day because other believers are telling them, are preaching the word. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem, so that's where everything started, Judea and Samaria. When we read Acts, we're talking about missionary journeys and then even to the ends of the earth. Acts 1-8 is happening. We support missionaries that make that happen. Some of you have probably been on trips where you've made that happen to the ends of the earth. And so what I would encourage you with is to not get fixated on where we're at in the States. Christianity is growing. We've got work to do to catch up with the rest of the world in all reality. Matthew 28 is happening. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them uh, all that I commanded you, teaching them to keep, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. This is happening. Bible teaching is happening. It's happening at this church. It's happening at other churches in Marquette, around, and it's happening all around the globe. Our faith spreads through the word. And so despite what we might think about Christianity being on the decline or Christianity crashing and burning like that first a slide that I showed you, it's growing. I said a few weeks ago, what we have a tendency to do is make all of these grand plans and then come to God and say, hey man, will you get on board with me? The reality is it should be the, the opposite. We should be discerning as brothers and sisters in Christ to where God is moving uh, locally and abroad and hop on board with him so that this can happen because the church is the hope of the world, the Bible says. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you through this uh, this quick study of what things looked like in the past and just a little bit of an unpacking of, of the sacrificial system and the beginnings of our faith, why that wasn't enough, why that didn't satisfy, why that points to Christ and, and his sacrifice being the only one that can satisfy. Lord, I pray that the brothers and sisters that I'm here with today will lean into that and, and just recognize that the Bible calls us saints, the Bible calls us children of God, and there is incredible power in that that we just leave sit on the table. God, your word says that the church is the hope of the world, and I pray that 
that we hear in, in, in other churches in Marquette and, and, and all the things that are happening globally continue to echo that message. Continue to teach your word. Continue uh, to sing your praises. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be sure to stay up to date with the latest information at lscc.tv. While you're there, click on Connect to find a way to get more involved at LSCC or learn about how to put your talents to work in one of our ministries. If you've been blessed by this podcast and call LSCC home, consider supporting LSCC financially by going to lscc.tv give. Big or small, every gift helps us in our mission to love God, love others, and be the church in our mission field, near and far. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you back next week.